Say, honey, where are you going? Everybody have the chant? Anybody not have the chant? In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. That all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all our steps on the path of omniscience, may these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. Oh, Manchu Shri, please accomplish this. Just like the six ornaments and the two supreme ones who beautify our world, you were their equal in your mastery of compassion, learning, and realization. Yet you practiced hidden in the forest in sacred solitude. Longchenpa, who perfected samsara and nirvana in the state of Dharmakaya, Trime Ozer, stainless light, at your feet I pray. Grant your blessings while we realize the natural state, the true nature of mind. Evening. Welcome. So, uh, before we rush off into taking refuge, uh, take a minute or two to see if there's any uh, afterthoughts from last week's topics. Uh, karma, or primarily the spiritual master. I had something. Sure, Lori. 
So, yeah, I was thinking about it afterwards. And I thought about when we, when we read these texts that are so old, um, you know, you have to know how to, when you're reading things too literally, um, you know, like you, you hear about, and I don't know anything about the Bible, very little about Christianity, but you hear, you know, a back and forth about, you know, do you take the Bible literally? Like if the Bible says homosexuality is bad, do you take that lit literally or do you say that was the times? And of course, Jesus would not have said that was bad, right? People following me. So I wondered if this is a similar case that some of those specifics literal things that are being that are being said in part of that section on, as the spiritual master when you bring them into these times it's kind of like well of course we didn't mean that you should just be you know treated like a doormat right you know of course you know so i just yeah that's a great question and uh Instead of just me answering, why don't we all answer? Like, who's, who thinks that it should be taken with a grain of salt and interpreted uh, and not just taken 100% literally? <laughs> I think we have a pretty good majority. Of those who didn't raise their hands, are there any that uh, did not raise their hand because they feel that it should be taken literally? Henrietta, does anyone? Well, uh, um, I'm I'm sort of half and half, <laughs> I guess, because um, what do we mean by literally exactly? I'm not quite sure. Uh, what parts? I mean, some parts really really strike strike in the right place you know but uh, I can't I, I don't know if I want to be blanket about it yeah and I don't think I mean blanket but I think that you look at it in a context that context versus the context we live in today and we do have and it is true. I mean, in the, in those days, the way the stories you hear, some people were treated very harshly by their masters that today, if they did that, they could get in big trouble. So you just, so you have to have that in mind when you're reading it. And, you know, I feel for someone who might read it and say, okay, word for word, you know, He's telling me to do this, and that's what it's, you know, I, it, that's kind of what I mean. I don't know if that helps at all, but. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's uh, cultural biases, and uh, yeah, I mean, I don't disagree with that. I don't. Uh, yeah. 
Certainly, it's a tricky area once you start interpreting. And uh, what do you interpret? What do you take literally? How do you interpret it? Do you interpret it to make your ego feel comfortable? Uh, knowing, knowing full well that uh, the the role of working with the the, uh, the scheme of working with a teacher is meant to help you uproot your ego, and that. Um, somebody external from you is, in many cases and in many ways, and, uh, better able to uh, shock you out of your ego than you are and notice your self-deception or help uh, to reveal self-deception. So it, uh, it requires genuine introspection and real critical um, uh, investigation as to what to take literally, what not to take literally, and and uh, when you the parts you don't take literally to to really uh, be clear, you know, try to be clear why and in what ways, and um, and uh, probably review again in the future. It's, you know, was that looking back? Was that my ego that made me leave that that dharma scene that that sangha because i didn't like this or that or was that was it really uh not a helpful healthy situation so uh, helpful in that process is talking to other sangha members older sangha members particular that have been through uh those situations for a longer period of time are very helpful in uh, in trying to understand these things. But also newer Sangha members, older Sangha members, you know, may have drunk the Kool-Aid. And it's it's often helpful to have new people come in and like, why do you guys all do it this way? <laughs> you know, a fresh set of eyes. So I think the dialogue is just very helpful and the constant like reviewing and, and introspection questioning um, up, up to a certain point and then at a certain point you need to leap there needs to be a leap and it's it's tricky to, to decide where that point is I think it has to come from your heart and a heart connection with the teacher and a situation and again uh, you may be wrong you know consider it again in the future any other quick comments uh, Gail hi um, I have a question it, it may be a dumb question so in understanding trying to understand the three realms I was wondering if the idea of Amitabha's pure realm has any relevance in, in trying to, I mean, the three realms, I guess, are samsara, even if they're called God realms, form formless. But is, is the idea of, a, of Amitabha's pure realm that is talked about, is that even in this category or? No, the, the Buddha realms are all outside of samsara. Okay. And they're not in the in the list. Perfect. Thank you. That's my answer. <laughs> yeah. 
let's see, the three realms. Uh, there was another handout. Anyway, yeah, that's that's the answer on that. Is that the it's Mary of, Beth? Mary Beth. There's that. There's oh. those those four things, and one of them is to um, the teaching, not the teacher, and the the not the literal meaning, but the spirit of the words. There are two other ones. Maybe I'm putting a few together, but would that apply in this situation when we're talking about the spiritual teacher? Those four reliances. Reliances. Thank you, Cynthia. <laughs> yes, totally. That that's that's the scheme that the Buddha lays out in one of his early sutras of how to go about evaluating a situation, a teaching, a teacher and your own state of mind. And the first one is rely upon the teaching, not the teacher. So you don't just uh, accept anything a particular teacher teaches just because you like that teacher. But regardless of how much you like that teacher, every teaching needs to be uh, evaluated separately, freshly. And you rely on teachings that make sense. Rely upon the the meaning of the teachings and not the words that are used. Don't critique endlessly the, the nuances of the words, but, but try to understand what's the meaning of the teaching. And obviously there's nuance there. Thirdly, rely upon the definitive meaning and not the interpretable meaning. So once you've, you've uh, uh, understood that the words and the meaning have uh, different levels, that the meaning is not necessarily equivalent of the literal words, you've suddenly come upon this area where you have to figure out, well, what is the, what is the real meaning? What is the meaning being pointed at? What is the ultimate meaning? of this particular teaching or the Dharma in general, as opposed to what is an expedient teaching that was perhaps given at a particular situation or in a context or to a specific person. Teachers often give teaching specific to the situation or to individuals, and it would be uh, um, simple-minded to accept certain teachings as being universally applicable to everyone. So rely upon a definitive meaning and not the interpretable meaning. And lastly, the, the ultimate guide or reliance is to rely upon wisdom and not consciousness. Not We don't rely upon our discursive mind, our intellect, but we rely upon primordial wisdom. And again, a very uh, sort of slippery slope. How do you how do you evaluate your ability to experience primordial wisdom? Can you experience primordial wisdom? Uh, but so th this is the quality of path: is that over time we begin to 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 get a feeling for okay, my my uh, reactive mind that's conditioned by circumstance and habitual pattern 
is hearing the teachings one way, wanting to interpret the teachings one way. But uh, you might have a sense uh, in your inner in your inner landscape, let's say, in your wisdom mind, that, well, maybe I should push myself a little bit or challenge myself. Maybe it's not exactly the way I thought. Gradually, over time, you develop, especially through meditation practice, but also from study and from activity interaction and working with teacher and sangha, develop a, a sense of what is wisdom and separating that from consciousness. And that really is the path, is identifying wisdom as opposed to, to intellect. Thank you for mentioning that, Mary Beth. That's great. Thank you so much. It was an awesome explanation of them as well. So thank you. Thank Thanks. you. To force something or others. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Primordial wisdom... Uh, okay, so uh, one of the, one of the questions you might encounter the the biggest the one of the biggest uh, issues in all of Buddhism is what is the the true nature of phenomena? When we say the true nature of phenomena is emptiness, what does that mean? And uh, the the most dangerous way of understanding emptiness is as nihilism, nihilism, whatever you guys say. Um, and and uh, uh, nihilism or nihilism manifests in not believing in cause and effect. So not caring what you do, not caring what happens. And then it also manifests, on the other hand, it can manifest in believing in emptiness, sort of holding emptiness as the most highest important view and getting puffed up about it and uh, sort of using it as a be-all and an end-all and like as an excuse or sort of like a, it makes everything right, you know. Oh, what that person did was not right, but oh, everything's empty. So which I guess is, is also similar to not understanding cause and effect. So uh, uh, the Dharma itself is actually its biggest uh, sand trap because the Dharma is all about emptiness, the true nature of reality. And, and emptiness is uh, not what it seems. <laughs> so what was that famous line about uh, that if you believe in emptiness incorrectly or whatever, that you're like uh, the practitioners are stupider than pigs, right? If you believe, if you believe in the true reality of the world, you're just a fool. Whereas if you actually believe in emptiness, you're stupid like cows. Right. Or pigs or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let's dive in to, uh, uh, taking refuge, and uh, the text is not that long from the root text, these two chapters from the root text, so I thought I'd read through them pretty much and go through them in that way and reference the commentary as uh, as it's uh, needed or interesting. Again, feel free to chime in as I go through that. I'll try to look, I'll try to look up 
and uh, see if you're raising your hand. But um, there's a okay. There's a couple of people who are no camera anyway, so I won't be on page two. So I'm going to stay on page one <laughs> of our little Hollywood squares here. So refuge. We're on uh, page sixty-seven. Relying thus upon a spiritual master trained by stages on the path of liberation. Refuge is the sure foundation of all paths. Beings of small scope dread the lower states. The two of medium scope are frightened by existence and samsara, while those of great scope see samsara's pain in all its aspects and cannot bear that other beings suffer. So we're not talking about the mouthwash here, the scope, but the... Uh, the range of one's um, uh, motivation. And this refers back to what he introduced early on in the text where uh, to have a small scope is to be concerned with uh, one's benefit and happiness in this lifetime, trying to achieve a better experience in this lifetime. Medium scope is trying to uh, uh, get away from samsara trying to achieve a, a state that's beyond samsara. And so the two beings of the medium scope are the Shravaka, the hearers, and the Pratyeka Buddhas. And the beings of great scope are the Bodhisattvas, who are dedicated for the, to the enlightenment of all beings in all ways. So those of great scope see samsara's pain it's all its aspects and cannot bear that other beings suffer. What they fear is their own peace. Laura, Lori, rather, sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry. I Yeah, so I guess my question on this was you can evolve from small scope to greater scope. Yes, these are not fixed categories, yeah. Yes, okay. Stuck in one or the other. Yes. As you stuck yourself there. But yeah, ideally, yeah. ideally, all of us evolve. And uh, the right. way to understand the, the three on a path is that before we enter the path, we're a being of small scope uh, or of no scope if we don't believe in karma. But generally, most Westerners are, try to be good people, try to not harm others and so forth. And then we enter the path and we have this sense of trying to uh, eliminate suffering. Our suffering in particular is uh, vivid and uh, uh, grabs our attention, so to speak. And then gradually we begin to widen our perspective and look about, look after the welfare of all, all beings. The bodhisattvas fear their own peace and happiness because that is sacrificing the peace and happiness of all sentient beings, all other. Thus they embark upon the great way of the Buddha heirs. The Buddha's heirs are the bodhisattvas. And so there are three kinds of being who take refuge. And there are three approaches, ordinary, supreme, and unsurpassed. And so there's various aspects that differ according to these three types of beings or uh, stages of one's evolution, let's say. And so um, these two chapters, like most chapters in uh, this presentation, have a, a general scheme of going through the, uh, the essence of a topic and then going through the divisions of that topic and then how to actually cultivate or put, it, uh, put in place or go about uh, implementing that topic and then the results of that topic.
Uh, so the, uh, without going through each word in the second stanza, he talks about how in the early tradition of Buddhism, it said that uh, you have to take refuge in each lifetime because uh, the refuge vow only lasts for this one lifetime. So beings of the um, small capacity, which is different than scope, uh, take refuge until they gain the fruit of happiness in their, in their next life. The two of middle scope take refuge in the intermediate for their present life and uh, ultimately they gain the fruit of those paths, our hardship, and those of uh, supreme scope take refuge permanently as a commitment for all lifetimes. There are two types of refuge, common or causal refuge and uncommon or causal refuge. And uh, later he's going to bring in a nuance of, uh, of the Vajrayana as being an uh, uncommon, uncommon refuge. <laughs> uh, their pledges that respectfully relate to cause and a fruit is the causal refuge. And they're so defined according to the difference that distinguishes the causal vehicle, which is the Hinayana and the Mahayana which sees the fruit as something in the future. So we have this scheme of ground, path, and fruition. And I think we said early on the basic scheme in Mahayana Buddhism is that the ground is samsara and nirvana. The path is the two obscurations of kleshas, emotional obscurations, and knowledge, ignorance about the nature of reality, and the fruition is the two aspects of the manifestation of enlightenment, the, the formless, the dharmakaya, and the form aspect of a Buddha. So that very simple scheme of ground, path, and fruition. And the causal vehicle views the ground and the result as different. The fruit as something in the future, not something present now. So we go about achieving something that's not here, by cultivating the path and, uh, from the Vajrayana. This, that distinguishes the causal vehicle from the Vajrayana where the fruit is gained immediately. In the Vajrayana, we, we, our view is that the, the result, Buddhahood, Vajra nature is present at all times, in all pres at all places, in all beings, in all ways, from the beginning to the end. And so the path is merely clearing away our belief that we're not enlightened. So it's a resultant vehicle. We take the result as our path, developing confidence in the result. Within the present moment, uh, for one's mind itself is the result. So the, the ultimate result is one's mind. And he's going to come back to that in terms of the refuge and what, what ultimate refuge is. turns out to be the nature of one's mind. Uh, the resultant refuge spoken of within the causal vehicle of exposition resembles that of Vajrayana only in its name, for it is part of causal refuge. The object of the causal refuge is the triple gem, the three jewels, Buddha Dharma Sangha. The Buddha in this case is the supreme Nirmanakaya, Shakyamuni Buddha, adorned with all the major and minor marks. And you can look these up. Some of them are very odd. 
not going to go into them, but there's 32 major and 64 minor marks that identify a Buddha that include things like uh, the Buddha has a little top knot coming protrusion coming out of the top of his head. If you've seen uh, images of him, and he has a little coil between his two eyes. That's his third eye, and he emanates that aura of uh, golden light and he never has bad breath and he never tells bad jokes and he's always completely well behaved <laughs> and so forth. The Dharma is twofold. First of all, the spotless Dharma of transmission is the teachings of the different vehicles of Sutra and of Tantra and the sacred scriptures that appear in written form. So here we have this traditional scheme of presentation of the Dharma, two aspects of the Dharma that's transmitted from person to person through the means of, uh, of teachings of different types and levels recorded generally in writing, in different types of writing. So it's the teachings of the different vehicles and the scriptures, these two forms. The, the infinite varieties of the teachings, and then the, the scriptures, this, where these are written down, is the Dharma of transmission. He goes through the traditional 12 branches of these sutras and so forth, life stories, which are uh, stories of the Buddha's previous births before the one of Shakyamuni. Um, so those are the 12, there's this traditional list of 12 types of teachings, and uh, stanza six grouped within the tantras are the tantras of austerity. So he, uh, being a, the tantra guy that he is, he includes the Vajrayana teachings, scriptures in this scheme. And he goes through the, uh, there's four levels of tantras in the scheme that he's referring to. It's sort of interesting that he doesn't uh, explain the ninefold, the nine yana path of the Nyingma, which has six tantras. But he really presents a fourfold tantra scheme, Kriya, Charya, Yoga, and then the uh, unexcelled tantra that has three types. There's the type for fathers, people who are fathers, and then uh, mothers, those, and then the people who are don't have any children like me, non-dual tantra. No, I'm kidding. These are, these are tantras that focus uh, respectively on uh, transformation of uh, anger, transformation of desire, and transformation of ignorance, which relates to skillful methods to wisdom and to their inseparability. These three great yogas are the inner tantras. All these teachings and their scriptures are the dharma of transmission. And, and uh, one of the things they point out is that um, the Dharma of transmission, the, the actual printed, recorded teachings of the Dharma are so precious, are so important because they have the ability to, to bring about the Dharma of realization. And so uh, any traditional Tibetan teacher, sorry, any traditional Buddhist teacher or Sangha will uh, preserve their Dharma teachings, their, their scriptures with uh, great fervor. The Dharma of realization comprises the grounds and paths, the stages of our progress, the generation and perfection stages in the Vajrayana, the power of dharani, 
which in the note is explained as the power of memory, but has to do with uh, sort of a larger sense of the power of words and uh, syllables, being able to uh, utilize words and syllables to create meaning and also to generate uh, energies of different types in the, in the, the practice of mantra and the concentrations with the essence of primordial wisdom, which is what samadhi is. Boundless are the ways of skillful means that have the nature of compassion. All of these have the nature of compassion. They all have that same quality of compassion. Then he lists the ten bhumis of the bodhisattva path that have these cool names. Perfect joy, the immaculate, luminous, radiant, hard to keep, clearly manifest, far progressed, and the immovable, perfect intellect, and cloudy dharma. These are the ten grounds belonging to the paths of learning. So we have this notion that there's a path of learning where we're progressing along the path of learning about the nature of our existence as a Buddha. And then we have the path of no more learning, which is Buddhahood. So just this very simple way of dividing the path into two parts. The path of no more learning is not really a path. It's sort of one of those anomalies. And uh, he, he talks about in the uh, Vajrayana scheme, they add three more boomies, three more levels on top of the traditional ten. They have universal light. The 11th Bhumi is the ground of the Ramanakai, mentioned in the causal vehicle and the Vajrayana, many presentations um, of the grounds. 12 or more are posited according to the way their qualities are classified. You saw in the notes the, uh, the most common scheme is 13 in the Vajrayana. 13 Bhumis, three extra ones. Sacred Dharma. The deep domain of mind, a sun of flawless light, is the five paths. So progressing along the paths and levels, the, sorry, the grounds and paths that he set up above. First he went through the grounds of the Bodhisattva. Now he's going through the, or just naming the paths, just as they named the levels. The paths are accumulation, joining, seeing, meditation, and no more learning. And um, if you're interested in these schemes, uh, sort of contemporary presentation of these. You can find uh, all of this in the Profound Treasury of the Ocean of Dharma by Chogyam Trungpa. The descriptions of the grounds in the second volume, description of the paths at the end of the first volume, and the, uh, the description of the Dharma of, of Realization and Transmission and the chapter on refuge in the, uh, in the first volume. Uh, Shravakas, Pratyeka Buddhas, grouped in their four pairs, which are sort of entering into the result and then achieving the result. And Bodhisattvas who reside upon these ten grounds can constitute the outer Sangha. The Dakas and Dakinis and the adepts of the secret mantra said to be the inner. They're the in crowd, the, the cool dudes. The cool. They get let in right away at the nightclubs, right? They don't have to wait online. These then are the objects of your concentration. Visualize them in the sky before you. So now we talk. He talks about how to take, how to, how to uh, take refuge, how to practice taking refuge. So we visualize all of this in the sky before us. Now, when he says all of this, he's talking about 
all of the dharma of of uh, transmission and all of this uh, this scheme of sangha that he just mentioned. So if you've ever uh, looked at a refuge tree a painting in Tibetan, in the Tibetan tradition, there's the sangha of all these different types: Buddhas, Bodhisattvas, uh, monks, dakas, dakinis, the lineage holders, and then there's also the the dharma of transmission that the scriptures are behind them stacks of books. We visualize all of this in the sky before us, especially consider that your teacher is a Buddha and thus the chief of refuges. Make offering to them material, mental, secret. Material, we offer water, we offer uh, light, we offer incense, uh, the traditional offerings of a shrine. Mental, we offer our hope and fear. Secret, we offer our passion and aggression and ignorance. And in company with every being, join your palms respectfully and say, in my teacher and the Buddha Dharma and the Sangha, I take refuge for the sake of others till enlightenment is gained. And this is the Vajrayana formula. In the uh, sutra vehicles, of the Hinayana and the Mahayana will but not include the teacher will just says in the Buddha Dharma and the Sangha take refuge for the sake of others until attaining the enlightenment just as we do before class in order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood. So that's a Mahayana version as is this where we take refuge for the sake of others. In the Hinayana we take we just take refuge. I go for refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. Here we do it for the sake of all beings, and we take, have the teacher as the fourth jewel. As we saw in the chapter on the Master, repeat this many times from the bottom of your heart, just like uh, in our little, from my heart, I take refuge. The refuge objects or the refuge uh, participants in our visualization show their pleasure. They radiate light. <laughs> you know, you can imagine this. Uh, I think we can imagine this very well these days, uh, given our experience with uh, computerized images and movies and, and uh, LED lights and so forth. You can imagine your refuge tree and all these beans, and as you bring them to mind, they light up and they express their happiness by lighting up. The light purifies the veils, obscuring the three doors, which are body, speech, and mind of others and oneself. Thus, consider that accomplishment is gained. So we have a sense of, of having uh, achieved refuge, of having achieved taking refuge. And this means the gathering of merit is achieved and the rubakai is accomplished. So this is one of many practices that are included in the gathering of the merit of the two accumulations. So when I went through the ground paths in fruition, and I spoke about the path as overcoming the two obstacles of the kleshas and the knowledge obstacle of ignorance, I neglected to mention that we do that by accumulating two baskets of goodies. One is merit, and the other is wisdom. And so uh, taking refuge helps us accumulate merit. And uh, the scheme is that the accumulation of merit results in the rupakaya, which is the form. Kaya, rupa means form. Kaya means 
body or embodiment, and the form kaya includes the sambhogakaya and the nirmanakaya. And the, uh, the accumulation of wisdom accomplishes, brings about the dharmakaya. However, so uh, stanza 13, the final and resultant refuge is the dharmakaya. This is the real true refuge. This is really what we take refuge in. We don't, uh, ultimately we take refuge in the, the inconceivable quality of enlightened mind. Not necessarily in its manifestation as a male or a female or a this or a that, as a monk or a doctor or a dakini or in any particular form that we might imagine as the form of enlightenment. But we take refuge in the inconceivable quality of enlightenment, wakefulness. Final and resultant refuge is the Dharmakaya, it is the essence of all three jewels, Buddha Dharma and assembly. It is the ultimate divinity. It's a little bit of an odd term, the luminosity of your own mind. So the Dharmakaya is the luminosity of your own mind, the true luminosity of your true mind. Free from all conceptual construction. And that's really what we're taking refuge in. The way to take this refuge is as follows. After taking the causal refuge, which you went through up above, consider everything to be your mind. In truth, the one who thus takes refuge and the refuge taken are not you. So consider everything to be mind. Consider that um, the mind and its activity are not two. Rest in meditative evenness within this state of non-duality. Absence of separation between subject and object. If you think the object of your refuge and your mind are separate, then your refuge is not ultimate. Resultant refuge is beyond all hope and expectation. So ultimately we take refuge in the true nature of our mind as luminous dharmakaya, not separate from our mind, not something out there, not part of our mind that is separate from the screwed up part of my mind. Priscilla. Um, uh, Derek, Chris, Chris had a question. Chris who? Wilcox. And I'm sorry, it looks like Priscilla might have had a different Oh, okay. Chris, do you want to go first? Priscilla can go first. Maybe it's the same question. Probably. <laughs> you know, I was thinking that uh, taking refuge in the Dharmakaya, but I'm taking refuge as the person who I am is taking refuge. So, I... It's like hard to get the two things together. The, you know, the relative and the absolute. It's like the, I'm, I'm taking refuge in a con, my conceptual mind is taking refuge. How do you, you know, how do you work that out that I'm taking refuge in Dharmakaya? So he... Wouldn't that, wouldn't that be a conceptual thought? Initially it is. Initially it's conceptual and then you take the leap into non-conceptuality to the extent that you can. And uh, nine times out of ten it's a contrived attempt. But once out of ten times 
it happens spontaneously and you vanish just like he says here rest of meditation hard for me to imagine because i mean i could see if i'm meditating like doing mahamudra meditation and then i take refuge i could see where i could leap into that but usually when you take refuge it's like before you're practicing so it's like your your you know your conceptual self is sitting down on the cushion and taking refuge and and so you know you have your ego and your sense of self and it's you know i can't conceive of how you would let that go unless you're you know enlightened to begin with i guess it just takes practice and confidence in your ability to let go so that that gradually you're able to let go on the spot even now okay we're having a discussion and yet we just switched places and neither of us is anywhere all right i, I thank you <laughs> <laughs> you know just to the extent that you can and we keep yeah. trying and we do it over on the spot yeah i see okay if you do the vajrayana practices you do it 100,000 times and maybe maybe three or four of those times it really happens okay thank you i can see so that it is one one real time <laughs> you know so you just flash on it and, and i mean it's just like doing tong le when we flash bodhi absolute bodhi chief the same thing and you're like how can i do that so we just try we try to not try right it's that you know that buddhist contradictory mumbo jumbo that we hear all the time you know you do the setup and then you let go all right okay thank you i see that question thanks chris was that yours what related is- but a little different and my question was if there's only one ultimate source of refuge why do we bother with the other three in order to be able to do the ultimate just to lead up to it most of us need a lead in and if you don't then you don't if you don't need the lead in then just do the ultimate um the lead in cultivates accumulates the uh the basket of merit so in, until you've accumulated the full amount of merit you need for the rubakai to manifest it even if you're able to merge your mind with dharmakaya then you still need to do the the causal refuge to accumulate merit we remember back to the beginning of the chapter when he talked about the different levels of beings and things like that we have to sort of remember that many people at different stages and levels and capabilities thank you thank you that's a good point um result in refuge is beyond all hope and expectation thus the gathering of wisdom is perfected by this result in refuge and thus the dharmakaya is achieved subsequently see all things as dream visions and illusions and then dedicate your merit just like the the uh, the practice of the absolute bodhicitta slogans in the seven points of mind training by a teacher
where the, the last absolute bodhicitta slogan is uh, be the child of illusion after you've gone through this progression of letting go into emptiness, regard all dharmas as dreams, contemplate the nature of unborn insight, um, let go of the antidote, whatever, how, how does that one, whatever, something to answer though, and then uh, rest in the nature of Alia. Each kind of refuge has its precepts. So he goes through the, the technical precepts of uh, the different types of refuge, uh, some of which bring up the, the issues that we talked about earlier and last week of like how literally to take these things. So continuing to uh, quandre ponder quandary over these things quandary um, in uh, 17 according to the precepts of resultant refuge you should train at all times in the equality of all phenomena so that when you sit down to do ultimate refuge it's not uh, you're not making a big shift from believing things are real to letting go but you're cultivating the equality of all phenomena at all times. You should not think in terms of good or bad, taking and rejecting that which is of greater or lesser worth. You should not trust your mind's elaborations. Never believe your mind, right? But cleanse them in the natural state of ultimate reality. All should be experienced as a mandala, spontaneous and perfect. All the clashes are arranged in order perfect order as the dakas and dakinis of the five buddhawisms refuge is then relinquished in a sense for the time that is for taking when the time for taking it has passed and this uh, has different aspects it is indeed abandoned through wrong view through the spoiling of the precepts you will fall to lower states therefore ruling rule yourself with care and mindfulness adopting and rejecting as you should all other refuges deceive. So taking refuge in anything except the three jewels is a deceptive type of refuge. Receiving this, you should have faith in Buddha, most compassionate. Thus you will be guarded free from fear in all the sequence of your lifetimes. What greater source of benefit and happiness is there or exists within the ground of pure, devoted mind, well sprinkled with the rain of merit and wisdom. The shoots will prosper of the pure expanse of ultimate reality and ripen as the perfect crop of Buddhahood. It's a ground path in fruition. The ground in this tradition is that our mind is pure and devoted. It's well sprinkled with the two accumulations and uh, gives, uh, gives rise to shoots that prosper. Shoots, the shoots will prosper of the pure expanse of ultimate reality will prosper of that's a little bit odd anyway those who haven't taken refuge have the virtuous waves of dharma are replete with moral conscience and respect for others so this is the result of taking refuge what does it look like and uh those of you that have read presentations by trump may be reminded of the way that he presents refuge the result of refuge is there's a, a change of name we get a new name and there's a change of mark, uh, and there's a change of uh, demeanor or character. Here, and those mark and, and character are, we're replete with moral conscience and respect for others. They're circumspect, 
mindful with a host of other qualities, accompanied by clouds of dharani. We, we speak carefully. Our words are important, have power. The sun of wisdom rises in our minds. Even in our dreams, we see the objects of refuge, the three jewels, and we never part from them. They remember their past lives and are of a good family adorned with wealth. So it also leads to uh, positive outcomes in a, in a conventional sense. All beings take delight in them, the three jewels. They gain the twofold goal, which is the benefit of oneself and other. Those are the twofold goals. And they themselves at last become the refuge of all beings. So those who take, who have taken refuge eventually become the object of refuge. Of everyone, they are the friends and helpers, holders of the riches of the triple kaya, the three kayas. If the excellence of taking refuge were to have a form, it would exceed the confines of the sky. Unbounded are its merits, taking refuge is the ground and base of every good. Who among the wise would not rely upon it? Refuge is the friend of all who leave behind their faults and journey on to peace. Bow down your head with faith a hundredfold and go for refuge to the supreme guides of the three worlds are a field of merit and wish-fulfilling trees and sources of both benefit and happiness. Wish-fulfilling trees like wish-fulfilling gems. They're, they bring whatever one desires, whatever one wishes for. I think, I think their fruits are wish-fulfilling gems, actually grow on wish-fulfilling trees. Through this proclamation, the supreme and greatly blissful qualities of refuge may ever be properly assumed the conduct of sublime and holy ones, exhausted through relying upon evil objects, vile and false, may their minds today find rest. <laughs> the trilogy of finding rest. I love that he ends every chapter with some way of bringing it to finding rest. Yeah. I, I just love that. It's just, and I do feel like, I, it's just like, ah, yes, wouldn't that be great? Yeah. I have one question. Can, can I ask? Sure. Related to um, verses 17 and 18. So first he tells us not to think about good and bad in, in verse 17. And that sounds lovely. And then in verse 18, though, it comes back to, you know, not having wrong views and falling into lower states and the need to adopt and reject. And I found as I read this that somehow those two things seem to slightly contradict. So I wondered if you could say anything about that or if anyone else had that question. Yeah, how do you, what do you make of that? How do you reconcile that? Not so easy. I mean, I, I, um, in, in 17, which type of refuge is he talking about? That would be, let's see, resultant. So that would be, so it's basically the, um, that's the fruitional viewpoint. Non-conceptual, beyond conceptual. Right, right. So basically what he's, in a sense, he's saying that on one hand, we should abide in the non-conceptual, fruitional, but at the same time, we should still follow the practice of the causal. Is that what this is essentially saying? Yes. 
And I think he'll do this in many different ways and situations and aspects, saying that your view should be as high as the sky, but your attention to, to detail and activity, your attention to karma should be as fine as sand. And so the resultant refuge is our view and the actuality of our activity is uh, intensely detailed focus on how we actually act. Rihanna? Yeah, I I actually find the next uh, I I find the next in seventeen the next verse. You should not trust your mind's elaborations, but cleanse them in the natural state of ultimate reality. I just, I don't know. I just find that disturbing in some way, not trusting your mind. I understand elaborations, um, I think. What was the fourth reliance? Yeah. um, uh, The definitive meaning. Oh, that was the third one. Third one. uh, The fourth. uh, Wisdom. Yeah. Uh huh. So this is talking about wisdom mind versus your normal dualistic. Yeah, yeah. Is that? Yeah. Do not trust in your mind's elaborations. That's consciousness versus wisdom. So uh huh. Wisdom, not the conscious mind. Okay. Thank you. I'm relieved. Vasily, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Leaping. The boundless attitudes help, and he has a very cool presentation of it, so let's dive into that and go through this uh, in detail. And again, remember that scheme, he'll talk about the topic, the divisions, and then how to do it, and then the results. Those who have this taking refuge spread upon the ground of love. So love is the ground, and we spread upon that, that ground the flowers of compassion, which in the cooling shade of joy. So we create a shade for those flowers through joy. Are moistened with the pure waters of impartiality. Beautiful imagery. Uh, those trained, those who thus have taken refuge and do that, they train their minds that through them they may be of benefit to wandering beings. Wandering through some sorrows, six realms, if love, compassion, joy, and partiality are not connected with the path to liberation, they are the four divine abidings, the causes of samsara. But if they are connected with the path that leads to peace, peace is an acronym, for, uh, not an acronym, a synonym for uh, nirvana, they lead beyond the ocean of existence. Thus, they are the four unbounded attitudes. So these two different like levels of these four attitudes of mind are presented in the Mahayana and you can see also Trungpa Rinpoche describes this in the Profound Treasury in Volume 2 when he goes through this. They focus on the whole infinity of beings as well as on the ultimate condition of phenomena. Thus they have a twofold all-embracing form. They are both referential and non-referential. So uh, let's back up. So in stanza 2 this first sentence ends with the word samsara in lines three. Then we start the second type 
of uh, boundless attitudes. But if they're connected with the path to nirvana, they lead beyond samsara, and thus they are the four unbounded attitudes. They, that the uh, unbounded attitudes, focus on the whole infinity of beings, as opposed to just a few beings or one being, as well as on the ultimate condition of phenomena itself. So we have a, a different uh, different uh, object of focus of the unbounded attitudes versus the divine abidings of a dramatic nature. Thus they have a twofold all-embracing form. They're both referential in the case of the divine abidings where it refers to a specific beings to, as objects. And they're non-referential, which is when we expand that scope to all beings and beyond that to the ultimate condition of phenomena where we go beyond any reference point and then it becomes non-referential. Or divine abidings. And, and, and this is uh, talked about in the tradition and specific, specific, uh, most commonly in the development of compassion where we have compassion for an object, compassion for a being or beings of a certain type and then there's compassion for all beings is the second type of compassion. The compassion of the medium scope, you might say, and then great compassion. It's compassion for the very nature of phenomena, of reality. It's great compassion, Henrietta. You're uh, muted. Uh, I had a question about the word, the use of the word divine. What what does that mean in this context? It means that they lead to the God realms. They're affiliated with the God realms. The, the four divine abidings lead to the four uh, form realms. Mary Beth, did you have something? Oh. Uh, the four divine abidings are limited in scope. The beings they envisage are but few. And their focus and their, and their form, they are impure. And being partial are the are the cause of the celestial world of Brahma, the four form realms. But the four unbounded attitudes are free of partiality. They're directed at the, at the state of liberation. Let those who have compassion train in them, bodhisattvas. Those who are not happy. So now he gives a little uh, essence of the four objects for these uh, attitudes. Those who are not happy are the object for love. Those uh, worn down by sorrow are the objects of our compassion. Those who have both happiness and wealth are the object of our joy. Those who love the close but hate the far are the object of our impartiality. Such are the respective fields of love, compassion, sympathetic joy, and impartiality. The forms of the f these four attitudes are thus the wish that happiness be gained those who are not happy, that sorrow be removed for those who are worn down by it, that joy should not be lost by those who have happiness and wealth, and that one should be of wholesome and impartial mind for those that have this sort of love some and hate others. In the meditation on them, there's no fixed order. Beginners, however, on the other hand, should start with training in impartiality, the fourth. Once one realizes the equality of beings who are close and far. One should then proceed to meditate upon the other three. 
So impartiality, starting with realizing the sameness of all beings, the sameness of all beings in their experience of suffering and in their desire to be free of suffering. Lori. Uh, yes. Yeah, so um, I know when I'd been taught this, the, the four limitless ones or the four unbounded attitudes, we always start at the top, work our way down. Um, but I did hear a teaching by Khandra Rinpoche to do the impartiality first for the same reason. So I just thought it was an interesting point that it's presented here as such. Yeah, I don't, Shrana tradition, it's presented that way. And Pema Children does that as well. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's very traditional. This comes up in a lot of contexts. Does it start with the impartiality? Yes. The oh, reason I don't being, remember her doing that. Yeah. yeah the reason, well, yeah, I, I read Trollog also did a wonderful exposition on that. Oh, okay. Being otherwise, if you do all the other ones without that, you might be being partial within your practices. Oh, yeah, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. With all beings as its focus, the meditation's form consists of this consideration. Oh, mind. You're talking to your mind here. Oh, mind. You are attached to father, mother, friends. You have enemies that you hate, and in this way, you are defective. Wandering in endless and beginningless samsara. As father, mother, friend, these enemies of yours once brought you benefit. So uh, first we realize that our mind is defective because it has all these different ways of viewing different beings. And then uh, we realize that all of these beings have been born innumerable times. And many of the lifetimes they were our mother and, and helped us. They brought benefit upon us. Why will you now return their kindness with malevolence? Just because in this lifetime, maybe they aren't that friendly to you. Or, and these, your present friends, were once your harmful foes, your mother, your lovers, your children. In other lifetimes, they killed you innumerable times. Uh, why, they were once your harmful foes. They brought, the suffering they brought to you is with you even now. That experience of suffering is part of your uh, makeup, your alia, Vishnana. How does it then make sense to do them good and recompense? And all the others in between have been both friend and enemy. They may have helped, they may have harmed. No point is there in hatred or attachment to any of these. Therefore, at the outset, place your loved ones in the midpoint of neutrality. So, you know, start by like changing the way that we view all these extremes. So start with loved ones, put them in neutrality, set them, and set aside attachment to loved ones. Oof, that's hard, huh? And for your enemies, as though they too were neutral, rid yourself a self of hatred of them. Have no near and far. Then eliminate your ignorance of regarding beings neutrally as neither good nor bad. So those who you view neutrally, uh, eliminate that ignorance as well. Train yourself in what will free you from samsara. Regardless of how these beings appear to you in this lifetime, that doesn't matter. They're nice to you, they're mean to you, they're evil to you, or they're neutral to you. It's of no consequence. All that matters is how you train your mind, is what you experience in your mind. And, and training your mind to be free of samsara 
is the key. The intention to remove impartiality. The afflictions that torment all wandering beings are what will free you from samsara. In wanting to be happy, sorry, in wanting to be happy, to flee their pains, all beings are the same. And yet in their confusion, they contrive the causes of their own suffering. Alas, may all afflictions of unhappy beings and all their evil tendencies subside. May they have an evenness of mind. May all embodied beings. So now he's going through like the uh, longer presentation of impartiality. Tormented by strong craving and aversion, be free from hatred and desire and have minds for which the near and far are equalized. Thinking thus, first meditate upon a single being, then two, then three, beginning with the beings of one region. Proceed then to one continent and then all four. So the method of spreading it out, first one being who's partial, trying to help them be impartial, then two beings, three beings, then all the beings in the next room, in this room, you know, whatever, however you like to divide it, this town, that town, one borough, whatever. Uh, then continents, and then all four continents. They only had four continents. Now we have, what, seven continents? Meditate on the entire universe. And then increasing it a thousand times, then multiplied again a second thousand times, then a third. So he's giving this little oblique reference to the traditional cosmology in the Buddhist tradition is that our universe is really a thousand uh, uh, times a thousand times a thousand world systems. So the first one where he says, then meditate on the entire universe is really then meditate on the entire world system. A world system has the sun and the moon and the Mount Meru and so forth. Anyway, it's a minor detail. The sign of your success will be that self and other, friend and foe, are equalized in conclusion. Think that all the objects of this impartial attitude, devoid of clinging, are all but the mind, and that the nature of the mind is similar to space. Then, with a mind completely free of concepts, rest within the ultimate condition, empty and unborn. As a sign of your success, the realization of what is deep and peaceful will arise in you. The fruit will be a mind that's free from near and far. The fundamental nature of all things will be spontaneously accomplished. So it goes through the, the, the development of the practice and then the fruition. Was there somebody trying to say something during that? No? Okay. We'll go on to, let's see. When thus your mind is even with regard to all that, just as you would wish that your own mother be with happiness, think the same for all embodied beings. And he's assuming that you have a good relationship with your mother and that you, your mother is one of the people you most wish to be happy. If that's not the case, then you use somebody else that is that. Uh, all living beings thus become the object of your love. So we're going through the unbounded attitude of love at this point, the form of which consists in wanting in the intermediate term or the sort of the near term that beings have the happiness of gods and humankind and ultimately that they reach the bliss of Buddhahood. Beginning with a single being, train yourself to embrace all until the very confines of the ten directions. As a sign of your proficiency in this, 
believe in the development of unbounded love, you will have supreme and all-embracing love more than any mother for her only child. Finally, great love that is beyond all clinging is to rest within the state where all are seen as equal. It is the sign of love and emptiness united. You will be purified by such a, such a training and just the sight of you will bring delight to beings because you will, be, you will manifest love in all directions to all beings. Was that me? Sorry about that. When you have embraced all beings with love, then just as in your mind you cannot bear to contemplate the sorrows of your father and your mother, be likewise with the suffering of wandering beings and generate compassion the next unbounded attitude. Your loving parents in your former lives did evil deeds on your behalf for which they suffer now heat and cold, hunger, thirst, servitude and slaughter. They founder in the great tumultuous floods, founder, flounder of birth, age, sickness and death worn out by all their different sorrows. They're destitute of tamed and peaceful minds that yearn for freedom. They have no virtuous friends to show them the true path. And so alas for them, they wander in samsara endlessly. Are you able to forsake them? You who see them thus, instead think rather from the center of your heart and from the very marrow of your bones. My body, all that I possess, all the virtue gathered in the triple time of meaning past, present, and future, May it, in this very instant, banish all the plain pains that beings have. The sign of your success in this cultivation of boundless compassion is said to be the inability to bear that beings suffer. Subsequently, you should evenly remain in a compassion free of all conceptual reference. So compassion that's not directed towards anything in particular, but just radiates in all directions. That compassionate state of being, of the inability to bear other beings' suffering. Of this, the sign is emptiness, emptiness united with compassion. The fruit of such a training is a mind that's free of malice, a mind that does no harm, a wholesome mind, a mind that will accomplish primal purity itself. Softened by compassion, train yourself to take delight when others find their own respective joys. The object of your focus will be beings who are happy. The form your attitude will take will be to think what joy these beings have no need of me to bring them to the state of happiness. For best of all, they found it for themselves. So rejoicing in the benefit of others and the happiness of others from this day till they gain enlightenment and they never lose their joy and comfort being. Begin with one, then train yourself until you include every being. The sign of proficiency in this is that being joyful, you have no envious jealousy at all. Wow, that would be nice. Later, when you concentrate on joy, you will be free of all conceptual reference. Naturally, you will be at peace with bliss and body, speech, and mind. It's fruit. You will have joy and steady wealth. Once you have grown used to them, begin with love. So begun grown used to these four qualities. Begin with love now, now that you're no longer a beginner. Meditate upon them turn by turn by the... This means fixation on the four of them will stage by stage be halted. If when you meditate on love, this causes you to cleave to everyone as though they were your cherished friends, this is halted by compassion, focusing on suffering and its cause and free. So they have this quality of sort of, if you have, if you focus on one and it becomes sort of uh, one-sided or partial in some way, 
then you use the next one to make it, to perfect it. Uh, this is halted by compassion focusing on suffering and its cause and fruit. If compassion is deficient and fixated on an object, if you get drawn down by other beings suffering and start to be depressed, depression will be halted by non-referential joy. If through joy the mind is troubled, sort of stirred up, taking pleasure in distraction, meditate on great impartiality, detach from what is near or far, and when impartiality becomes indifference, Meditate on love, as you've done before, because indifference is uh, the, the sort of perversion of impartiality. And on the rest successfully, easily, in such a way, stability and mastery are gained. Those who have grown firm in such a training meditate upon the attitudes in direct, indirect, alternate, or in any order. Thus, their realization of the four unbounded attitudes will grow and will be fresh. They will become most firm and then extremely firm. This practice will give rise to four results. The fully ripened fruit is high birth and the fine, final excellence. So he's going through these four aspects of the of karmic uh, result that he went through in the karma chapter. First is the fully ripened fruit. It's high birth and final excellence. In the desire realm, one will gain the body of a god or a human being and strive for others' benefit. The fruit that resembles the cause, our actively continued practice of the same, meaning the same sort of things of uh, the boundless attitudes and passively, a happiness and a freedom from adversity. Thanks to the conditioning result, the third one, one will be born in pleasant, wholesome, happy places where people live in harmony, adorned with wealth. Thanks to the proliferating consequence, these four attitudes will grow in strength. The riches of the two aims of self and others will be gained spontaneously. By love is anger driven out. The Samogakaya and mirror-like wisdom are completely gained. So what is the result of these? The Samogakaya from among the three kayas of the Buddha, or we'll see there may be more kayas, and the mirror-like wisdom of, from among the five Buddha wisdoms are completely gained. The Samogakaya is adorned with all the marks, both great and small, of Buddhahood. Compassion, clinging love is banished. So the opposites of them are banished, and one achieves Dharma, the Dharmakaya and the all discerning or all uh, the discriminating wisdom are achieved. So from compassion you achieve the Dharmakaya. This Dharmakaya is endowed with strengths, distinctive qualities and so forth. Sympathetic joy removes all jealousy. The Nirmanakaya and the sublime wisdom all accomplishing are gained by a sympathetic joy. The Nirmanakaya is manifold with various forms. Its enlightened action is spontaneously accomplished. Impartiality, the fourth one, removes both pride and ignorance. So it just eliminated all five of the uh, major kleshas. The Swabhavakakaya is made manifest together with the wisdom of equality. So the Swabhavakakaya is this fourth kaya that's uh, talked about uh, when you want to be complicated as you come up with this fourth kaya, that's the uh, sort of essence of all three kayas together. Uh, and this kaya is made manifest together with the wisdom of equality, the wisdom of the Dharma Dhatu. The Swabhavaka kaya is the Dharmata beyond conceptual construction, the highest 
Therefore, love, compassion, joy, and partiality are of unbounded excellence and highly praised by the unequal teacher of both gods and humankind as the Buddha. Any path that lacks them is mistaken. They err who have recourse to other teachers. Embraced by the four balanced attitudes, the path leads on to spotless liberation. It is the way that all the Buddhists have tread, or tread earlier and later, past, present, and to come. Always. The causal vehicle declared that just like seeds producing shoots, skillful means and wisdom bring forth the two kayas. The resultant vehicle declares that the two kayas are made manifest when the twofold veil that hides them is removed. The twofold veil is the veil of clashes, conflicting emotions and ignorance that believes that things truly exist, in particular the self. As means to this, they both rely upon the path of limitless compassion, both the causal vehicle and the resultant vehicle. In truth, with both the vehicles, the causal and resultant, the practice is in harmony. It is the same. It's emptiness enlivened with compassion. It's the essence. The sutras have moreover said that purity without beginning rests primordial in beings like an uncreated seed. Montreana, so this is... This is the uh, the Sutriana version of the Tathagata Garbha, the uh, Buddha nature. That purity without beginning of Buddha nature rests primordially in beings like an uncreated seed. So it's not even a seed yet, but it's uncreated, but it still rests there. This this really uh, sort of elusive way of describing the Buddha nature as being uh, a potential that's present without being there. <laughs> Very slippery. The mantra likewise says that from the first all beings possess the triple kaya, a little more straightforward. Uh, um, veiled, though this may be by adventitious veils that are to be removed. In brief, the learned and accomplished all describe the outer and the inner paths, respective, respectively of sutra and of mantra, as one thing and the same. Therefore, in the footsteps of the Buddha's holy children, strive with comfort in the four unbounded attitudes. And our concluding verse upon which we rest, in these good words that lead to peace, still the turbulence of wandering beings, minds exhausted by pursuing wrong, mistaken, and inferior paths, may their minds today find rest. Any comments, suggestions, Lori? Were you joking about the uncreated seed? I didn't. He he wrote that, didn't he? Did I? No. So I I took that to mean like un, an unborn thing. Uh, but it says, it's it's there, but it didn't actually. It's always been there. It was not born. It wasn't created. It's just always been there. Just like when they say this purity is unborn or Dharmakaya is unborn or Unborn and uncreated. Are they the same thing? Well, that's how I interpreted it. I don't know. Eric, I Another way of saying that. Someone yeah. disagree with me. Someone can He's just laughing about it. It's a fine, it's like uh, how many, you know, like uh, angels on the tip of a pen or whatever it is, right? Who who else thinks that uh, 
uncreated, unborn. Artists. Well, I think it's important to to know that one way or another. Anyone else have any thoughts on this uncreated, uncreated seed? What is an uncreated seed? I um I had a thought about this, which was um, having to do with like human um, procreation. I I was thinking about like um, where a human being or mind is before conception um, seems to me kind of like an uncreated seed. Like there's the you know when it's like the DNA is separated into the egg and the sperm and they aren't together yet and may not be for you know 20 years or something that there's the potential for the seed to that will become a born human being there like in the egg but it's not actually a like a like a a seed yet i don't know that so so i think derek i was more aligned with what you were thinking of it's like an unborn seed, like, I don't know, an unborn seed is like, it's going to be born, it's just not born yet. Whereas an uncreated seed is like, not even a seed yet. That's but I took, it could be a seed. seed yet. But like, uh, a seed to be. like Yeah. <laughs> soon to be, but Chris has raised his blue hand. Yeah, I was thinking uh, and then Kevin. more like uh, something without karma. Because, you know, a seed does have a history. It came from somewhere. An uncreated seed has no history. Has has no karma. Has no history, no karma. That's interesting. Huh. Uh, Kevin. Right. It, it hasn't happened yet. It only has the potentiality. It's like in physics when you talk about kinetic energy. It it's not energy. It's stored its potential energy. Something it, uh, hasn't been created yet. It only has the potentiality for it. Potentiality. That's unborn, isn't it? No, because if it's unborn, it still exists. It doesn't exist yet. I mean, but it it has the full potential of. I, think, I mean, existence is a is a bad word to use in Buddhism, but um, it, it has <laughs> it, it has full potentiality. Priscilla, help us out. Unmute yourself. I was going to say exactly the same thing. Like the word "potential" is an amazing word. You know, it's like not it's like not definite, but it's something could happen. You know, it's like. It just has, it's such full of a lot of, um, the word potential has a lot of potential. So, you know, I, I think that, um, that word stands out to me, potential, like it's not happening now, but there's potential, but it's not definite. It's not, there's no birth there. It's not, you know, it's not in reality, but there's a potential. So the, you know what I mean? It's like both it could happen or it couldn't happen. Huh. So, so it, uh, he says that purity, which is without beginning, rests primordially in beings. The uncreated part is a, an analogy, right? But the purity rests primordially. What is that purity? Well, 
Also, I was just thinking created implies that something else, it implies two things, that something created something else. Mm. Yeah. That's kind of how I saw it too, that, that there's, there's nothing, nobody is creating this. Right. It doesn't have a duality. Yeah. Right, right. Something that's created has a duality, a creator and a a created. Yeah. Isn't it also impermanent? If it's created, if it's made from more than one thing? Yeah. Yeah, conditioned. Yeah, conditioned. So basically it's this uh, wonderful way of describing that something that's there but not as the thing that's there (laughs) you know it's like trying trying your best to say that something exists without saying that it exists so that in the end what it does is it leaves the mind in a state of suspended um in suspense, where you 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 can't really conclude anything definitively about it. I think that's you know he's describing something that's indescribable, right? So on, on the on the side of the unborn, that one's always a little paradoxical because, in a sense, unborn really means always having existed, never needing to be born. The way I understand it, anyway. Would you say that a fetus is unborn? Yeah, I think you're you're on to it. You can no. say say that. So uncreated awareness is when the self disappears and you realize this self was created. It's it's a concept, it's all those things, it's the rolling up of the skandhas. That's the self. And once you vanquish that, you have uncreated awareness. Anyway, it's something to ponder, something to sleep on. In the uh, the commentary, anything interesting come up for you guys in the commentary? Anybody get a chance to read the commentary and find anything interesting? Some of it is uh, just uh, explaining the root text, maybe with a little expansion on it. Um, oh, Derek, what are the two kinds of cessation? Yeah, what are the two kinds of cessation? Longchenpa himself describes these two on page 1249. So this is one of the two things that I was going to direct us to. Thank you for asking about that. On 249 in the middle there, he says there are two kinds of cessation. First, there's analytical sensation, which is the absence of conceptual elaboration, achieved through the cessation of analysis or achieved through analysis, which is the result of removing previously existing impurities through the use of antidotes. That's like the causal path. Second, there is the non-analytical cessation, which consists in resting in the space-like state that is naturally free from concepts or impurity. That would be more like the result-type path. Way to go. So these two types of cessation. 
Um, does that do it for you? They're a little obscure. <laughs> and uh, they're, they're listed uh, when, you, when you go through the list of the dharmas in the early tradition. The, the first way of slicing the dharmas is between the dharmas that are created and dharmas that are uncreated. And the uncreated dharmas in the earliest tradition are of three types. There's three of them. There's space, analytical cessation, and uh, non-analytical cessation or natural cessation. So, Eric, I guess I was wondering if cessation equals nirvana here. It it does. There's there's these two ways of experiencing nirvana. For some reason, they don't say that, but that is, that is the meaning of it. There are these two. And so in the, in the Hinayana tradition, nirvana is achieved by overcoming impurities through the use of antidotes. And uh, in, the, in the Mahayana tradition, nirvana is realized being uh, completely all-pervading and all, all always present. And so in the Hinayana, you have this notion that uh, full nirvana can't be achieved while you're alive in a body, but only after you die and all the skandhas scatter. Whereas in the Mahayana, this non-analytical cessation can be achieved whether you're alive with skandhas or without. Um, there was something else. Let's see. Uh, on 245, there's a nice little quote. Is there, excuse me, is there a chapter name or something that you can give? Because my text doesn't have page numbers. Oh, yeah. Is, Somebody yeah. else. My digital it, copy is, doesn't. It, it's in a, either. And it comes after the Tathagata Garba. It's the chapter called Refuge. Thanks. Because unfortunately, yeah, these, the Kindle version doesn't give you any of the normal page guideposts. So if yeah, you got to be a little fleet-footed, nimble-footed to find it. So let's see, it's the third page of Refuge in the Commentary, which comes after Chautauqua de Garba. <clears throat> There's a quote of an interchange between Ananda, the Buddha's attendant, and cousin. What is the Buddha in which we take refuge? You take refuge in the Dharmakaya. You don't take refuge in the Rubakaya. Mostly, I like this, though, because it comes from this sutra that's a really cool name, Sutra, Showing Gratitude Sutra. You know, it's like they had a sutra of, for everything. There's so many different sutras. It's just amazing the different names of all the sutras. Okay, and, and then I know you guys are really beating about the bush. We have two minutes left. And uh, just briefly, he goes through... Um, some really cool stuff in the Vajrayana which I know you guys are not interested in but I'll bore you just really briefly uh, to, to look at the, the Vajrayana stuff um, so where are you again now? yeah so I'm in the uh, I'm in Refuge the chapter and the commentary called Refuge and it's let's see page 3, 4, 5, 6, 7 it's page 7 on the bottom, I don't know what your pages look like. 
right after the cessation, right after the part about cessation that we just read from. It's about within the context of uh, Mahayana, the Sangha comprises all those who have realized the luminous nature of the mind. Noble beings residing on the ten grounds of realization. He quotes from the Uttarachantra, and below that he says, from the uncommon point of view. So there's common Mahayana and uncommon Mahayana. The uncommon Mahayana is Vajrayana, namely that of the Vajrayana. The objects of refuge are understood differently according to the class of Tantra in question. And uh, I know this is just like a sort of... Uh, distraction, just sort of like uh, entertainment, but I thought the uh, description of the different uh, objects of refuge, the jewels and the different tantras were sort of cool. And to, to read one of them, uh, he, first he gives Kriya Charya, and then Yoga Tantra, and then the next paragraph is the uh, Anutra Tantra. The jewel of Buddha consists of the principal deities and their retinues. These are inseparable from the Samogukai Buddhas and are the Tathagatas endowed with Vajrabhati, speech and mind. These deities are either single, multiple, or in groups. And this is like extremely uh, difficult to understand, complex sort of Vajrayana uh, imagery that I have no idea what he's talking about. But just to like get a little taste of uh, the sort of... Uh, um, leap that's involved in Vajrayana and the view of Vajrayana. These deities are either single, multiple, or in groups. They dwell within the mandalas in the densely arrayed Buddha field. It's one of many Buddha fields outside of samsara. Like Amitabha's Buddha field, someone asked about all the many Nirmanakaya deities, moreover, emanating from the Sambhogakaya. So Nirmanakaya's emanate from the Samokai, belong to this jewel. All of this belongs to the jewel of the Buddha. The jewel of the Dharma consists of all that has been previously explained up above, where uh, it includes both the common Mahayana and um, that's pretty much it. And then uh, the jewel of uh, Finally, the inseparable nature of the three jewels, blazing with the major and minor marks, constitutes the sacred and unsurpassable jewel of Sangha. Anyway, just a little glimpse of uh, Vajrayana point of view of the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha might be of interest. That's it. We're out of time. Any final comments? That means it's time to rest. May you all find rest. May we all find rest in this difficult time. May all beings find rest from all the ills and difficulties created by outside situations and also by their own minds. Thank you. So let's uh, conclude with our dedication of merit. 
and his merit may all obtain a mission yes, may yes. defeat the enemy wrongdoing the from, us, from, from the stormy waves of birth, old age, yeah, from the ocean, death, from the ocean of Sahara, may I free all beings by the confidence of the golden sun of grace. May the garden and the rigged in's wisdom bloom. May the dark ears of sentient beings be dispelled. May all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Thank you. Be well. Thanks. Have a nice week and have a great Memorial Day weekend. <laughs> Thank you. You too. Thank you. Weekend. Hope it Stay means. Stay safe. Stay safe. Yeah. Uh, Emily, let's see. Are we good with the recording? I think so. Okay, so I will just. So. <laughs> Thank you. Take care. Bye.